Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. Today we are discussing episodes 19 and 20 of The Story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gonglue. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you like what you hear, please remember to give us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us to and feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter or on our website if you have any comments or feedback. For these episodes, we do a drama episode recap and then discuss the culture and history portrayed in the drama. Episode 19 and the beginning of episode 20 have some of the funniest scenes in the drama because we see the emperor in all of his imperious nature turn into a pouting child. We pick up from the last episode where noble consort Gao or Gao Guifei has successfully kept the emperor for the night. In doing so, this means that the emperor has to disappoint the empress and left her to wait for many hours. Crestfallen, the empress returns back to her palace. She understands that the emperor has his duties, but that doesn't mean she can't be upset. Ying Luo sees this and is pissed off that the emperor so easily forgot about the pain that Gao Guifei inflicted on Yu Pin. She lets out her fury on Fu Hong, the empress's brother who came to see her. He highlights to her that the scandal with the golden pupils and the evidence against Gao Guifei were too simplistic. The emperor probably saw right through the fact that the evidence was probably planted to harm Gao Guifei, which is why he isn't as furious as he could have been. Ying Luo, though, changes the topic to ask if Fu Hang has any other leads on who may have left the banquet the night her sister died. Fu Hang responds, saying that he hasn't been able to find any evidence yet. So Ying Luo decides that she has to get closer to the emperor's personal staff to get better answers. The opportunity arises because next we turn back to the emperor and this is just a funny episode. The emperor starts to itch and scratch while he's looking over a couple of documents, but unfortunately it turns out that the emperor has contracted scabies. This is an infectious skin condition that causes severe itchiness and can be quite infectious. And so the emperor is out for the count and requires round-the-clock medical attention so that he doesn't further injure himself due to his itching. The empress, seeing that her husband is now ill, decides to move into the palace to personally take care of him. Originally, she wanted to bring Mingyu, but Mingyu pushes this task onto Ying Luo, who sees this as an opportunity to seek more answers about her sister's death. So, despite being a risk, since Ying Luo might also be infected, she accepts this task. Ugh. And we continue the streak of seeing Mingyu as the worst. She is currently just so annoying and will continue to be annoying for at least a little while. Ugh. Regardless, hilarity ensues as the emperor is annoyed at having Ying Luo tend to him, or at least help him put medicine on the infected spots on his back and stuff, but then he's also annoyed when his eunuchs try to help. 
<laughs> Given that there are so many people who have been told to leave the emperor's side for their help as a way to quarantine the emperor, the only people left are Ying Luo and a bunch of eunuchs. So the emperor, despite not liking Ying Luo at all, has no choice. I find it very funny to see how annoyed he is. He is the emperor after all, but doesn't matter. He still has to be subjected to the likes of Ying Luo helping him put medicine on instead of anybody else. At night, the emperor continues to turn into a child as he cannot suppress his itchiness and the emperor stops by to tend to his illness. It's quite funny. The emperor is twisting and turning, which he cannot do, so the empress helps fan him cold air the entire night in an effort to ease his itchiness. I do think that the actor Nia Yuan, uh, who portrays the emperor, does a pretty good job showing the childish nature of the emperor, and it's certainly a side of him we rarely see portrayed as emperor. It's also great. Um, I love the conversation between the emperor and the empress, where the emperor is like, why do you like Ying Luo so much? And the empress is like, she's so caring. And the emperor's like, um, what are you talking about? <laughs> but he doesn't say anything else. As the emperor sleeps, Ying Luo takes an opportunity in the morning to talk to Li Yu, the emperor's head eunuch, on whether or not he noticed any person leaving the banquet at Tianxingong earlier this year. Li Yu, unfortunately, does not provide any more information since he has a clear conviction that no one left the palace that night. Ying Luo is once again stumped. A couple more days pass, probably about like a month now, and the emperor is still not back to full health. The local doctor we met in the last episode, Ye Tianshi, is brought in to check up on the emperor again. And he confers with Ying Luo the best way to help the emperor get back to full health. He whispers his remedy in Ying Luo's ear and she gasps aloud. Honestly, when I first listened to this or watched this, I was like, is he dying? Uh, does something else need to happen? I don't know what. But let's see what happens in the next scene. Inside, the emperor is with Li Yu and the empress, and he is again itching up a storm. The empress wants Ying Luo to come help grab some aloe that Ying Luo had procured. But in this instance, Ying Luo starts to berate the emperor. She says things like, oh, the emperor doesn't recognize how much the empress has done for him. Look at all the other women in the palace who promptly hid from the emperor after hearing his diagnosis, and it was only the empress who decided to remain to stay. And, Ying Luo says, she's heard that Gao Guifei's favor and attention by the emperor right now is solely due to her father's capabilities at court. Ying Luo then goes on to say, wow, the emperor, the almighty emperor, has to fawn over women in order to please government officials related to the women in his harem. Ying Luo goes so far as to compare the emperor to prostitutes. This was too much for the emperor. Clearly, a line has been crossed. He has not heard such insolence in his life, I'm assuming. He grabs a nearby sword, and I'm going to be honest, I noticed that sword in a scene earlier today, and I was like, 
hmm, this is odd, there was a sword here, and guess what? It is conveniently used in this moment. And he starts swiping and stabbing towards Ying Luo, who continues to laugh with derision at the emperor, who is only held back by the empress and Li Yu. And they are at this point unable to comprehend exactly why Ying Luo is saying these things. Interestingly, Ye Tian Shi is around and skulking just outside of view to see what's happening in the room. As Ying Luo continues to laugh at the emperor and the emperor continues to try stabbing Ying Luo, the emperor spits out a mouthful of blood. Once this happens, everyone is freaking out, but immediately Ye Tianshu rushes into the room and Ying Luo stops her laughing and kneels to the ground begging for forgiveness for what she said. The Empress is like, what is going on? And demands an explanation for what happened while she helps the Emperor sit down, wiping his mouth of blood. He is currently heaving and coughing and unable to speak. Ye Tianshu explains that after reviewing the medical records of the Emperor, he found that the Emperor hasn't recovered primarily due to stress and had a blood clot or basically something stuck uh, in his chest that hasn't yet been released. Therefore, he asked Ying Luo to help infuriate the emperor to cough up this blood clot. It's only this way that the emperor can fully heal. The emperor hears this and is like, WTF? He's heaving and wants to punish Ying Luo, but in his weakened state right now, he can't say much. The Empress is also trying to like calm him down. <laughs> and so Ying Luo tries to flee and say all these things while the Empress helps uh, Ying Luo in pushing the Emperor to, you know, get away, to get rest, so that he can uh, not say anything. The Emperor, though, still tries to stop Ying Luo from leaving. Seeing that Ying Luo might not be able to flee so easily, Ying Luo, quote unquote, uh, faints. And the Empress takes this cue to immediately call for Unix to drag Ying Luo to safety. And it's great because the Empress and Ying Luo are such a great duo. They know to trust each other and have each other's backs when dealing with the temperamental Emperor. Well, when the Emperor is finally up again, he immediately shouts for Ying Luo to be dragged in front of him. He wants to personally punish her for what she said. The Empress states, or kind of smirks, that she can't be blamed because all she was doing was trying to help the Emperor's illness. But I honestly think he's right. If she didn't have those thoughts in her mind already, how could she say all of those things so cleanly and without hesitation? Ying Luo clearly took this opportunity to berate the Emperor with her personal opinions of him. This kind of goes back to earlier in the episode when the emperor was like, so you must think of me as like a nasty, evil person. You must hate my guts. And then Ying Luo's like, of course, in her <laughs> mind at least. But the emperor cannot exact his revenge because Ying Luo has fallen ill. She herself now has been infected with scabies after tending to the emperor. He has no choice but to let it go because how would it look if he punishes a maid that tended to him during his illness. But that doesn't mean he can't mess with her. He allows her to remain at Yang Xindian to recover, but adds bitter herbs to her medicine for, uh, as compensation. 
This turns us to episode twenty. The emperor specifically tells Ye Tianshi, the doctor, that three times a day, he is to find the most bitter herbs to add to Yingluo's medicine, and that she must be observed to drink all of it. What a petty guy, right? He's like, these are things that I am giving Yingluo to show my personal appreciation for her saving my life or helping me with my illness. When we all know that he's doing it to punish her, we find out shortly after that Yingluo's illness was entirely a ruse on her part. She didn't actually contract scabies, but instead she just caused herself to have an allergic reaction. As she is allergic to peanuts, she purposefully ate peanuts and caused herself to get sick, so that her symptoms look like she got scabies. She also worked with Ye Tianshi to feign documentation that she got scabies, and did this in order to escape punishment from the emperor. I mean, I think this is a stroke of genius because, yeah, if she wasn't ill, the emperor totally would have killed her. A few days later, the emperor asks Li Yu where Yingluo is, and Li Yu responds that she went home. The emperor is once again furious because this clearly means that she lied about getting scabies. I do appreciate all of this because it means that the emperor is actually really smart. He can see through all of the little tricks that Yingluo has done, whereas it's、uh, evident that Li Yu and others have not seen through her as easily, because. In this instance, how can Yingluo recover before him when she got sick after him? Obviously, her illness was a lie. The emperor is all worked up, gets changed, and stomps all the way over to Changchungong to personally punish Yingluo for lying to him. Along the way, though, he hears a number of maids gossiping about the past couple of days. So here's another hilarious part for the emperor. The Qianlong Emperor decides to stoop down and hide behind a corner to hear what these three maids were talking about. He even tells all of his eunuchs to hide too. So you have this whole procession of people sneaking about, trying to listen to some gossip with their leader, the emperor. These young ladies say that they think the emperor is a very good emperor for having let Yingluo go, given her actions trying to help him with. Uh, his illness. Any other emperor would have already killed Yingluo after hearing her say things、uh, that were rude or contradictory and basically full of insolence towards the emperor. These ladies leave, and the emperor is again at a crossroads. And poor Li Yu is on the short end of the stick. If the emperor punishes Yingluo now, everyone will think he is a wicked emperor, someone who is too petty and ungrateful. So now the emperor can only walk away and suffer her harsh words with no retaliation. It is so funny to see the emperor have nothing or no ability to, I guess, retaliate. I don't know if retaliate is the best word, but to, I guess, punish Yingluo for saying bad things about him. It was such a scene to see, like the emperor and his entire entourage just like kneeling or hiding behind the rocks. <laughs> Only in this drama, we also do get a cute couple of scenes with Yingluo and Fu Hong. During Yingluo's period of illness, the handsome Fu Hong comes to take care of her in the night. He is 
very sweet, helping her um, put on some medicine and also steals a kiss on her cheek. Wow, look at him. I also think he's quite a hypocrite because he's always telling her, you know, like, we have to have propriety, blah, 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 and he's the one stealing a kiss. When she gets all better and goes to confront him in his rooms, he just aptly denies taking care of her and teases her that she must have been dreaming about him at night. She's like, really? I thought you were there, but I don't know because I might have been dreaming since I was sick. She doesn't have evidence. But as she is about to walk out of the rooms, Hai Lan Cha, Fu Hong's best friend and Imperial Guard as well, walks in and tells Fu Hong, he's like, I'm never taking the night shifts for you again. I did 10 straight night shifts for you, Fu Hong. Ying Luo overhears this, turns around and looks at Fu Hong. She's like, you liar. <laughs> because obviously Fu Hong was just teasing her this entire time. The rest of the episode and into episode 21 revolves around the Emperor's birthday, which was alluded to in earlier episodes. Today, we are back at Changchungong, and the Empress is with Chunfei. They are reviewing a couple of paintings that the Empress made to gift to the Emperor for his birthday. One painting is a landscape painting, while the other is of the Luo Shen, or the goddess Luo. The group picks the painting of Luo Shen to be sent to the emperor as a gift, as all of them believe it is the better painting. Meanwhile, Mingyu, the one dissenting vote, is once again annoyed that her opinion of the landscape painting was rebuffed. When Mingyu heads outside, she sees Shu Guiren and Qing Changzai. Two women we haven't seen in a while appear. They stop by with gifts for the Empress and are hoping for an audience with her. Mingyu rather rudely turns them away because Shu Guiren is clearly hoping to ally herself with the Empress in order to get closer to the Emperor. This annoys Shu Guiren who drags Qing Changzai off to seek shelter or an alliance with Gao Guifei. At first, Gao Guifei is also not pleased to see these two women who are clearly here to ask for help. But she does give them an opportunity. If they're able to rid her of the annoying dog next to the empress, she will help them in turn. The dog in this instance is, of course, Ying Luo. The day of the emperor's birthday arrives and the palace is present for his birthday celebration. The Empress presents her painting to the Emperor, but interestingly is actually the landscape painting this time. It is applauded by the Emperor for her skill, but Gao Guifei then takes the opportunity to give her gift. And immediately we are presented with a rousing chorus of Western music. The piece in question is the classic Canon in D, and the curtain raises for the attendees to see a full Mm, I don't know. It's not a Western orchestra playing, but it is a, I guess it's a musical group. It's a mishmash of musical instruments being played by, uh, I don't know if it's eunuchs, but by people uh, for the emperor. We'll get into this most certainly later on in our podcast episode. 
The emperor is ecstatic to see these instruments being played because they remind him of his grandfather, Emperor Kangxi, who had a great liking for these instruments. Seeing these musical instruments played is a reminder to Qianlong of his grandfather, and that is a really special gift. What was even more challenging was getting people together to learn these instruments. Clearly, Gao Guifei won this round of best birthday gift. Interestingly, though, the idea came from none other than Shu Guiren. Gao Guifei, to her credit, does take this opportunity to present Shu Guiren in front of the emperor, and Shu Guiren presents her gift, a beautiful glass Buddha tower complete with the relic of a renowned Tang Dynasty monk that has been named the Lotus Flower of Buddha. This is another impressive gift to the emperor, as this is something that the empress dowager has been seeking for quite some time. The emperor tasks the empress with picking a couple of interesting gifts along with this tower to give to his mother. The task, in turn, is given to Ying Luo. That task is then promptly stolen by Ming Yu. You guys can't really see the eye rolls that are happening here. The episode ends with, as you guessed it, the priceless relic going missing after all of the maids head outside to enjoy the fireworks on display to celebrate the emperor's birthday. Before that, though, Ying Luo learns from Fu Hang of tunnels that were built in the imperial palace during the Ming dynasty that were used by servants but seldom used now. Something of importance for Ying Luo in the future. But before we have time to think about that, Ying Luo returns and finds out that the relic went missing, and she must figure out how to get it back or else they are doomed. And that is the episode recap for episode 19 and 20. But before we get on to history, it is time for some pop culture. There are so many couples to uh, dote upon today. First up, we have our Ling Ho CP, or the Empress and Ying Luo, as a couple. It is so cute that they totally trust each other, and I really like how Ying Luo just wants to help the Empress and for her to be happy. Ying Luo is like, the Emperor, whatever. He sucks, but how can I make the Empress happy? Then we have Di Ho CP, which is the couple for the Empress and the Emperor. It's painfully obvious that the emperor can finally be himself when he is around the empress, and we see him act all childish around her. It is super cute. I don't think he would do this if there was any other woman around him. Especially during his birthday when everyone is watching the fireworks, Gao Guifei is like, ooh, look at me, and the emperor just ignores her and asks what the empress thinks. You can see the look on Gao Guifei's face who's like, oh, God, why can't I have his full attention? I remember all the comments when this episode aired were like, Gao Guifei is once again the only person in the palace that is actually fighting. Or like palace fighting? Or palace fighting, yeah. The main couple are enjoying themselves and Ying Luo doesn't even give a moment's thought to the emperor at this point. So she is, or Gao Guifei is just, you know, in her own little world by, her, by herself. Finally, we do have, of course, Fu Cha Fu Hung and Ying Luo CP. Fu Hung is totally making the moves. And seriously, we have to tell him to get moving or else, you know, you're going to lose the girl. 
All right, with all of these couples out of the way, let's talk about some history. I'm going to talk very lightly about scabies because the first written records in China of this illness date all the way back to the Sui Dynasty or the end of the 6th century or beginning of the early 7th century AD in the book of General Treatise on Causes and Manifestations of All Diseases, Zhu Bing Yuan Hou Lun, which was a compilation of 50 volumes of diseases and treatment methods. The original author of this compilation was believed to have lived during the Sui Dynasty, but the book wasn't formally published until the Song Dynasty some 400 years later. Now, Kathy and I aren't doctors, but I'm not fully sure that I buy how the emperor could have uh, contracted this illness because you need prolonged contact with someone else to get scabies. But anyways, it's just a drama, so we won't dwell too much on it. If you're a doctor, let us know if this is plausible. Okay, next up, we want to talk about Shan Shui Tu. This is the original version of the painting that the empress ultimately decides to gift the emperor in this episode. The original painter was Liu Songnian. He lived during the early years of the Southern Song Dynasty from around 1131 to 1218. The years that he was alive differ wildly between English Wikipedia and Chinese Baike. I haven't seen something like this, so I'm gonna just point this out. English Wikipedia has his age of living between 17, sorry, 1174 to 1224, which is like completely different what they have in Baiku. I'm going to go with the Baiku version because I think that's probably more accurate. Anyways, Liu Songnian was considered one of the four masters of the Southern Song Dynasty and excelled in landscape painting. Sijing Shan Shui Tu, or the four scenes of the mountains and water, is considered one of his most famous. The original painting is comprised of four parts that depict the four seasons from the city of Hangzhou in southeast China. The lake that is painted is most likely Sihu or the Western Lake, which is a prominent feature of the city. Here are the four panels. The first, spring. It depicts a small pagoda covered by the trees and the flowers with a misty mountain in the distance. The next, summer, which is the frame we see in the drama. It depicts a pagoda next to a lake. The trees are flourishing and the people can enjoy under the shade of the pagoda. The third one is fall, in which one can see that you are enjoying the view of the mountains and the fall leaves from a different pagoda. And the last one, winter, in which the world is covered in white the view is to enjoy the pine trees and the stone formations covered in snow. The painting is currently held in the Palace Museum in Beijing, China, which is great because we can, of course, now compare between the original version to the current version shown in the drama. Now, what we mean by the um, what is shown or gifted to the emperor is that the empress uh, makes kind of a copy or repaints it in her own fashion. So the original is, of course, still uh, around for us, and the gift is from the empress to the emperor. Which then brings us to the next 
historical topic, which is going to be a long one. I want to discuss the whole Western musical group that Noble Concert Gao or Gao Guifei gathers for the emperor's birthday. The reason why I'm not calling it an orchestra is because, like, it really isn't one. There's a whole random assortment of instruments. If it was just strings, sure, an orchestra. But there's like random wind and brass instruments. It's also not a band because of the string instruments. It's also not a philharmonic because we have no percussion. Anyways, there's a lot of history and a lot of bugs in one scene. So I'm gonna start with the history first. You can tell Kathy is getting quite worked up over this because certain topics we don't know as much about, like the medical stuff, but for music, we have done quite a bit of research outside of, you know, just Chinese history. So this is something that we will have thoughts about. Well, in the drama, the emperor was very pleased to see the Western musical group and said multiple times that these instruments date back to the time of his grandfather, Emperor Kangxi. This is true to history, and this may be surprising to listeners, but China has had a long history with Western classical music, or I wouldn't say classical, but even further be uh, before that to the Baroque and to, let's say, the late Romantic periods. I'll do a little recap of that and then focus on the Qing Dynasty emperors. In the 16th century, the Italian missionary Matteo Ricci arrived from Portugal to Macau and then made his way to Beijing to meet with the Ming Dynasty emperor Wan Li. He brought with him musical instruments, striking clocks, and other Western inventions. His musical instrument gifts included a clavichord, which is a small rectangular keyboard instrument. The emperor was very, very pleased, and again, this is a Ming Dynasty emperor. He was very pleased with the gift and promptly informed Ricci to teach a group of eunuchs how to play the instrument, and they performed for the emperor. Taiwan was partly under Dutch colonial rule between 1624 to 1662 and from 1664 to 1668. The Dutch established trade routes between the Ming Dynasty and subsequently the Qing Dynasty after that. During that time, Dutch and Spanish missionaries arrived and brought Western musical instruments with them. There are uh, historical remnants of various types of musical instruments found on the island from that time period. Western instruments and Western music reached its peak popularity under Emperor Kangxi, who lived from 1654 to 1722. The emperor was very intrigued with Western culture, and there were several prominent missionaries who held positions at court and brought their Western culture and music to the Qing Dynasty court. One of the most famous is the Portuguese missionary and diplomat Thomas Pereira. This is the guy that Emperor Qianlong mentions in the drama, or Thomas. Thomas and along with some other missionaries were favored by the Emperor Kangxi and ordered to write basically a music theory book in Chinese of Western music theory, the first of its kind. Emperor Kangxi was very enamored by Western instruments to the point that he did indeed practice playing several of them and would play Chinese music on the Western instruments. 
It didn't hurt that the Baroque-style instruments were opulent and resplendent. The emperor was noted to practice daily. Indeed, he could even play some Buddhist mantras on the harpsichord. These accounts were reported by missionaries back to their respective kings back in the West, including King Louis XIV of France. News of Emperor Kangxi's favor of the instruments traveled fast, and soon there were many that were gifted to the emperor. He then ordered for his sons to learn how to play these instruments as well. He even got mad when it seemed like his sons couldn't really get the essence of the music. Emperor Kangxi wanted them to learn the theory in addition to having the actual skill of playing. The emperor also had Western orchestras perform in the palace almost daily for his enjoyment. I can't even imagine having Emperor Kangxi like go up to his sons, Manchu sons or Manchu princess, like playing an early version of the violin and saying like, um, this doesn't sound right. <laughs> the Italian priest and composer Teodorico Pedrini was a missionary in China for 36 years, and he even wrote a Baroque piece. I'm gonna uh, probably butcher this, I don't speak Italian, so... Um, the name is Dodici Sonate a Violono Solo col Basso del Napridi. This is the only known Baroque music written in China, and the original manuscript is still preserved in the National Library of Beijing. Unfortunately, after the death of Emperor Kangxi, his son Yongzheng kind of left Western music to the wayside. He probably didn't have much of an ear for Western music. Interest in Western music picked up again during the reign of Emperor Qianlong, our emperor. He did order the musical instruments to be restored and repaired again, uh, the same ones that were gifted to his grandfather. He was also very insistent on making his own versions of Western instruments in China and creating his own orchestra. By the mid-1740s, he even had an 18-person orchestra with violins, cellos, and basses. However, this all came to halt in the later years of Emperor Qianlong's reign and throughout the rest of the Qing dynasty because of more secluded uh, foreign relations. It is very rare that Chinese dramas depict this Western music influence in China, so I will give a lot of points to this drama here for introducing this to us. But let's go to the drama, which was like a whole roller coaster for me. <laughs> in the drama, the musical group plays Canon in D by the German composer Johann Pachelbel. Hopefully this is pretty familiar to audiences. The original piece was composed in 1680. We're well into the 18th century at this point, 1741 to be exact, so this is okay. But, 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 man, oh man. Oh man, look at this actual group. I personally nearly had a heart attack when I saw it. <laughs> I don't know, what did you think, Karen? Well, I was like, uh, were these instruments created at this point? Because there's the accordion, which was first invented in a basic form in 1882, and the saxophone, which was invented in 1840, and that's an instrument that I know very well because I was uh, studying music theory and basically 
read up about which orchestras first started having saxophones. And it was certainly in the 19th century. So I was like, hmm, I don't know why these would exist in uh, Tenlong's court, but... Yeah, not to mention like the very modern versions of other instruments. I saw this guitar and I was like, uh, what? <laughs> then you have the violin, um, the cello, those might be okay. Karen, you play the flute, what the heck was that? <laughs> and then we have the trombone, like a modern trombone, and the trumpet as well. So, I mean, I guess it looks cool that they were trying to show that China had these Western instruments all the way back in the 17th and 18th century, but maybe they didn't want to spend the money on <laughs> these Western instruments to get them historically accurate. I'm not even talking about getting era-appropriate instruments, though. Canon and D, or the version that they, you know, overlaid, overlaid in the drama, <laughs> is strictly a string piece. Can you, like, take out the brass and the wind instruments and remove that random guitar? <laughs> and, you know, you could have been set. I mean, maybe the production didn't know what musical piece they were going to overlay, but come on, an accordion? Like, why didn't they throw in a piano or a harpsichord? I would have even forgiven a piano. Like, a harpsichord is pretty hard to come by. A piano, yes. Okay, so, as you can tell... I'm kind of worked up about this because I personally was in orchestra for many years. Karen, you were in symphonic band. Let's just say we know our classical music. So um, yeah, I like I said, it was a roller coaster for me. <laughs> At first, I, when I was listening to this, I was like, is this just like background music um, for Canon and D? Like, why is this popping up? <laughs> uh, anyways, moving on before Kathy gets more emotional about this. Let's wrap up today with talking about Shulitsu or Saria. Apologies for the pronunciation. These are pearl or bead-shaped objects that are purportedly found amongst the cremated ashes of Buddhist spiritual masters or Buddhist monks. These are essentially relics. And I don't think it's really known why these Shulitsu or Saryas, Sarayas, I don't know, again, apologies on the pronunciation, form after the cremation of monks. But because of this, I would say phenomenon, these relics of these pearls or bead-shaped objects are highly venerated as they are believed to embody the spiritual master and they provide good luck. So as we see in the drama, the Empress Dowager has been seeking one of these um, for a very, very long time. So this is just something that, I, I guess, is something that is popular in Chinese culture to see these shulitsu. And these relics do appear in Chinese books and dramas, uh, especially like historical fantasy or um, martial arts books to basically showcase that they have mystical powers. And that is it for today's podcast episode. Oof, we went on a long rant about musical instruments, but I think it was super interesting to learn about the Western musical instrument influence in the Qing dynasty. If you are looking for additional Chinese dramas to watch, please do check out our sponsor, Jubao TV, which has a number of Chinese dramas and movies with English subtitles for free on their platform. You can access them online via jumo.com or xumo or else on TV through Cox Contour and Xfinity. 
They also have their content available on Sling TV. Thanks again so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, you know how to reach us. We are actually now working to publish two episodes a week, so stay tuned for our next episode published before week end. We will catch you in that episode.